trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. This is where we are going to get to the bottom of some issues. And I, I think we've got a great issue to discuss today. Uh, Brad Bennett joins me. Brad is the, say it for me, say your title, Brad. It's a Community Action Committee Chair. Community Action Committee Chair for Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. And uh, Brad, I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation. Um, some of the happiest years of my life were spent living in Utah's Dixie. And, and in fact, my appreciation for the uniqueness of, of this part of, of the Beehive State goes all the way back to when I was just a little kid. My parents took me down to, to visit, you know, Bryce Canyon and, and uh, Zion. And I just, I never forgot. It's so striking. You can imagine the impression it would have on a person as a young kid. So that was always Utah's Dixie, you know, in, in my mind. And I had the privilege of living there. And one of the things I noticed 25 years ago when I moved there was there was a very notable effort to... Uh, how can I say this? Reshape the heritage of Utah's Dixie because it allegedly was connected to bad things from the past. Let's fast forward 25 years. Tell me about the situation of what is going on now in St. George and, and the surrounding area there um, involving the need to adjust, you know, what uh, what people are supposed to think about Utah's Dixie. So what's going on right now, at least the, the hot button issue over here, is that... Um the board of trustees at the uh, Dixie State University want to remove Dixie from the name entirely and um, because they, they're becoming a D1 school now, and it's pretty much official now that that's going to happen. Or I think it's already happened, actually. But anyway, um, so they're saying that, look, in order for us to grow and recruit the people that we want, and, you know, um, to be on an international stage, you know, we have to get rid of Dixie. So the public doesn't agree with that. They've never agreed with that. But that, that's what's going on. How interesting. I mean, look, over the years, I, I've followed this and uh, and I still don't understand why the approval of everybody on the outside is, is so important, you know, especially on, on matters like this. Um, if, if someone could could show that. Uh, I don't know that the people of St. George or Utah's Dixie had, had somehow actively harmed the world in some way, shape or form. It might matter. But um, this is this is a heritage that I think is terribly misunderstood. You and others have stepped forward, though, and, and are, are not going to let uh, people come in here and just you know erase this area's history without first understanding that there, there's much more here than meets the eye. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole thing is based off of just lack of information, you know, ignorance. So that's the thing. You know, why would we bow down to cancel culture uh, requests to remove the name when the issue is actually with them? If you don't understand its local meaning and, uh, you know, why it's important to the community, then why on earth would we would we bow down and, and do what's, uh, you know, uh, your wishes? Because you're the one that needs to be educated on the matter, not us. We, we all know. So who are the major players in terms of uh, trying to foment this change? It's really spearheaded mostly as far as we can tell by the ex-mayor, John Pike, who was a huge, 
hugely responsible for getting the hospital to change their name from Dixie Regional Medical Center to St. George uh, Regional Medical Center. He also was uh, a, a huge advocate for trying to and, and, and was successful temporarily in getting the name of the Dixie Center changed to Greater Zion. And um, that was actually when our group was formed in response to that. And we actually fought back and got that name changed back. I'm happy to hear that, by the way, because it, it rubbed me wrong as well. It was I, I just have this sense that there is uh, there's a very tiny segment of people, and I mean the tiniest of minorities, but they are not content until they have stirred up some kind of uh, uh, dis, uh, distrust or uh, just some kind of conflict in communities. And, and the name Dixie is something they've seized upon. Uh, you and I had talked before we went on the air, and, and you pointed out there's also a little bit of rhetorical gamesmanship going on here where uh, Dixie, Utah's Dixie specifically, is being conflated with other things like the Confederacy, you know, in an attempt to say, see, this is just it has racist origins. Therefore, you know, they, they should not rightfully keep that name. Tell me where this disconnect is taking place and where, where things are being compared that really don't compare. Well, again, it's just not knowing the local meaning. So there, you know, you can't you have Dixie has is used all over the United States in various places. You know, if you go look and do an Internet search for Dixie. Tons of things come up, you know, it's used a lot of places and it has different meanings in different areas. And even in the South, they debate, they, they argue that it's not racist. It really just merely refers to a place. That's really what it means. It's just a place. Even in the South, it just refers to a place. In fact, in the beginnings of, you know, a lot of people, uh, historians actually disagree on the origins of Dixie. Nobody's fully sure of how it even started. But the most credible and most widely accepted version is that the Bank of New Orleans, um, back in 1833, issued a note, a $10 note called the Dix. And Dix stands, and there was a lot of French-speaking people there, and probably still is, and uh, in, in that area. And so Dix means 10 in French. And then the plural version of a Dix bill was Dixies. You know, I had a pocket full of Dixies. So that was that was really the beginnings of Dixie. And then, um, you know, that was a huge bank, by the way. It was funded with $12 million. That's a lot of money back then, as you can imagine. Second largest bank in the United States. So it caught on pretty quick. That currency was widely known. Uh, eventually, you know, all of Louisiana became known as uh, Dixieland. And then it just later referred to all of the southern states. So that's that's the history of Dixie, but Utah is different. You know, in 1857, we had 38 families that were sent down here from northern Utah to start the cotton mission because the climate here is obviously a lot better than or more amenable to that type of thing uh, than any other part of the state. And so that's they came down here to grow cotton and to share uh, that crop and, and other uh, cash crops with the rest of the LDS community. And so they quickly termed it you know, coined this, this area as Dixie, uh, you know, a little oasis in the desert. But that's that's what it means. So it's it's really just a, a nickname for this beautiful area that we live in that uh, has been uh, placed here, you know, uh, by the pioneers that started it. They're the ones who, who coined that. Well, you know, the, the time that we live in uh, is probably going to be characterized in history books as uh, this is the most racist period in America. I mean, today, where we are today. 
And it's not because there are people, um, you know, the average person isn't obsessed with race, but there, there are people out there who are and who, who find power in it and try to manipulate and control others through assigning guilt or, you know, otherwise just assigning people according to their skin color. Um, and it's, it's a real problem. And now we see that problem insinuating itself into Utah's Dixie and, and claiming that, well, you know, it, it can't have any connection to this or somehow it's going to harm the potential. You know, in the case of Dixie State University, this may harm the potential for its students to, to make their way in the world coming from an institution with this name. Um, tell me your thoughts on, on how this, this whole controversy over changing the name uh, came up in the first place. Do you, do you have any idea where the, that, that push came from? Was that Mayor Pike as well? Mostly Pike and Biff Williams, the president. Yeah, those, those two. Um, you know, but it's it's not the first time that it's come up. Uh, this is just the first time that it's come up in, you know, recent history. Um, you know, it was years before it's kind of been talked about, but that, that nobody's really spearheaded it like they have uh, here. So, but yeah, it started uh, right after the hospital changed their name. And then... Um, then they came out and said that they had some students that claimed they couldn't get a job because Dixie Dixie was on their resume, which uh, when I started to ask the leadership about that and drill down on it, um, they don't have any proof of that whatsoever. They admit, that it's, they, they, admit, they admit that it's anecdotal, okay? <laughs> so we have these anecdotal uh, you know, accounts, and so we have to take action. I just I wonder, were they applying for jobs at Berkeley? You know, I mean, maybe I could see it maybe being a problem there, but. Um, no, no, no employer is going to admit that first off, no. you know, um, that's a violation of federal law, you know, total discrimination. Um, that didn't, I doubt it even happened, but even if it did, it stopped them from getting, you know, one job, not a job. You know, what's interesting about this is that the marketing uh, materials that get sent out by Dixie State University claim that they have a 95% job placement from for graduates within six months and a 97% job placement within 18 months. So those are some of the highest numbers in the country. Um, and then they claim in the next breath that kids can't get a job because of this. But, you know, we've been named Dixie for over 100 years. So, it, you know, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. No, it's it, it sounds very suspicious. We are up against the break here. We're going to take a quick break. We'll come back and continue our conversation with Brad Bennett. You may think, well, this is happening in southern Utah. This has no bearing on me. No, trust me, it does. Because the same people who want to cancel a name in a community far away from you will eventually have something they'll want to demand of you. Better understand why they do what they do and how to work back and fight back against it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I am talking with Brad Bennett. Brad is, uh, Brad is an individual who is engaged in, um, in a fight that's going on in his community in southern Utah. And Brad, I just want to put this on the record. I want people to understand. You are not the kind of guy who sits around looking for an opportunity to, to go out and, and become activist and to be involved like you are currently involved. I suspect you probably enjoy living your life, running your business, and, you know, in, in other words, uh, uh, tending to your own life. But uh, here you are. And you're in a role which subjects you to some criticism and whatnot. Um, I just want people to understand from from your point of view, 
why did you step up? So um, I'll read you a little statement I prepared about Dixie here in a bit, and that'll that'll I'll, that'll clear up why Dixie's important to us. But you know, I'm a native to this area. Uh, my parents were, um, my mother was born in uh, Hurricane, Utah, and my father in Lehigh, Utah. They both met in, uh, here in, in St. George at Dixie College and got married. And um, I've lived here ever since. All of my family has gone to school here. I went to Dixie Middle School, Dixie High School, Dixie College. So, you know, Dixie's uh, definitely, um, you know, uh, endeared to all of us here. And so, yeah, I, I have no choice but to stand up to this cancel culture attack on our area because it's uh, it's affecting me personally and and i think it will affect you know generations to come if we don't do something about it now no i i would agree i it's it's hard to deal though with with people whose whose profession i mean their their reason for living is to be offended and then to use that offense to draw attention to themselves and you know to to whatever cause they're they're engaged in and i i have to ask you this and, and i know you you can only speculate uh, but i'm curious you know people like john pike um when when he was the mayor of st george people like senator mitt romney I see a tendency on the part of uh, the more uh, politically minded um, individuals like them to to really appease and to uh, appeal to uh, the the woke folks on the left. And so I'm I'm wondering, in your opinion, are they beholden to to any particular constituency? Is there are they in fear that uh, that they're going to be labeled as insensitive? I'm trying to understand why they would would be so adamant about fixing a problem that doesn't exist. Yeah, I can't fully answer that myself other than to say that obviously there's something because they wouldn't be doing it otherwise. And yeah, we see a lot of this shift of people that we thought were, uh, you know, even Republican that are, are, are skewing left. Um, and that's happening here, at, like at our own school. You know, we have a lot of leaders in the board of trustees that we trusted and expected to, you know, uh, vote in line with our conservative values. And now all of a sudden they've They've taken a, 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 you know, a trip to the left and uh, we don't understand it fully because some of them, you know, the ones that aren't from here, we get it a little bit more. But the ones like Brad Last, who's in the House of Representatives, who is from Hurricane, uh, been here far as I can tell forever. So, you know, it's, it's sad to see that he would vote against it. But he also works at Dixie State University. So, you know, this is really, mm. I assume, about keeping his job there. It's a total conflict of interest. Now, you had mentioned to me before we went on the air that uh, there, there's an attitude among some, um, even those who disagree with the idea that the name needs to be changed, that, well, you know, but we've already lost or it's a done deal. You know, there's really nothing we can do about it at this point. And I know, Brad, you would vigorously beg to differ um, there's still a lot that can be done. Walk us through what, what people can do to, to stop this from being imposed by busybodies. So just to start out, so we've already stopped this once, right? So they they are no closer to changing the name now than when they first conceived the idea, okay, last year. Because what happened is when they finally decided they were going to change the name, they totally circumvented the community, and it was on purpose because they knew they didn't have our support. They thought they could just ramrod this through all the way past the the, the Utah Higher uh, Board of Education, um, the Senate, and the House, and and they pretty much did until they got to the Senate, and uh, 
that's when we pretty much exposed the fact that they circumvented the community. They, we had, we had senators saying that, you know, that we haven't received so many emails about an issue as long as we can remember. So they saw that there was a huge outcry against this and um, they basically did not accept their original bill, which said the name needed to be changed and it couldn't have Dixie in it at all. The bill got revised. Don Ibsen was a big part of that. And they, they revised it to say that now the name can have Dixie in it if, if you pick a new name. And if it doesn't, you got to have a, a heritage committee that's going to figure out what we're going to do to keep Dixie around and say safe, you know, saved in the community somehow. Um, we don't feel like that's good enough, but that's what it says. And then it also says you have to start the whole process over and you do have to do focus groups and you have to involve the community um, this time around. Although they get to pick, you know, who's on the, the name exploration committee and they're, they're in full control of it at the, at the college so or, the, or at the, the university. So um, it's disingenuous uh, exercise, but um, but the whole bill has started completely over. Everything has to be redone from scratch. It's back to square one. So to say it's a done deal, no, it's just getting started uh, for the second time. This doesn't sound like so much of an attempt to to win people over, you know, to convince them, hey, this is a better way to let go of the Dixie name. This sounds more like um, the the people who are pushing for this of just setting themselves up to grind you down. You know, if it has to start over again like this each time, that's just a matter of, uh, you know, we're just going to keep grinding you. And, of course, it takes your time, effort. I assume it takes money, you know, to, to organize, to, to fight things like this. I don't know. It just I, I applaud you for what you're doing. And, and I think that uh, I think more people need to understand that they have a stake in this. Uh, Brad, talk to us about why this isn't just you know, about uh, keeping, you know, the, the name Dixie, there's, there's a larger principle that's at stake here. Help yeah, us understand. I'm, I'm gonna, yeah. I'm going to read you this because this, this is uh, this, this pretty much sums it up as to, you know, why Dixie is so important to us. So, you know, Utah's Dixie heritage isn't merely a reference to bygone eras, pioneers, memories of teachers and fellow students who touched our lives, nor just a community. Dixie has grown into so much more than just a name, adorning institutions or hillside monuments. It has, in a sense, assumed a life of its own. It's our cumulative past, present, and bright future personified. Dixie has become infinitely greater than the sum of its parts and isn't something to be shunned in favor of political correctness. So, you know, Dixie does represent a collective spirit of our community from beginning to end. And, you know, it's definitely worth saving and people don't realize that 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 school that they're trying to close or that they're trying to change the name of, you know, it, it was going to close. It, it was owned by solely by the church up until 1835. So and in 1833, it was actually going to be clo- or it was going to be closed or 1933, I should say it was going to be closed. And we made a deal with the with the legislators of Utah to take for the state to take that over. But part of the deal was that we had to fully fund and keep that uh, alive on our own dime until 1935. So for two full years, we had to run that solely on our funds. So our community has put in ridiculous amounts of sacrifice to build that that school and to keep it alive. You know, even when the school was first started back in uh, 1911, 
part of the deal was that the northern part of uh, uh, Utah and Salt Lake, the church donated um, 35000 but the members here had to raise their uh, 20000 This is back in, you know, 1908 when they first came up with this. And so that's a lot of money. Um, they built the school through a lot of sacrifice. You know, this is our school first before it's anyone else's. You know, everyone's welcome, but that school is meant to serve our community first. And for you to circumvent our community and change the name, get rid of Dixie, which is tied closely to our heritage, and do all this without our consent and with our tax money uh, is extremely offensive. Brad, can you hang with me for another segment? Sure. Okay. We're, talk- we're talking with Brad Bennett. He is with Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. We'll be back right after these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We are speaking with Brad Bennett today. Brad is with Defending Southwestern Utah Heritage Coalition. And, you know, again, I'm going to say you may think this is far removed from you unless you live in southwestern Utah. But this kind of thing is happening all over the place, Brad. Uh, it's not just, you know, people trying to purge Utah's Dixie of its name. We see it happening, you know, with various sports uh, team, you know, symbols and things like this. It, it seems like it's just it's a virus. It's spreading. And someone is determined they're, they're going to just keep pushing until they get everything changed. What can the end goal possibly be once once we've righted all the wrongs by by erasing history? I guess I'm just curious what's supposed to come next. Well, I mean, I guess they just want to destroy your identity and then create a new one for you. And uh, so there's a playbook somewhere, but, you know, we're not going to stand for it. And we see this cancel culture, like you said, everywhere. And, you know, now it's even come to this, our small town of St. George. Um, So we're taking action because if we don't, it'll only get worse. Uh, We like our area um, the way it is, and a lot of other people seem to agree. You know, we're growing at record numbers. Tell me me about the the name survey that uh, Dixie State University supposedly commissioned or or was commissioned, you know, to see should this name be changed. Um, There is quite a story behind the survey that was offered, and uh, I would love to to hear you recount that for us. So, I mean, there's been a couple things they've done. So in the very beginning— when they thought they were going to change this name uh, last year, they, again, they knew they did not have the support of the community. And they didn't care either. They really didn't. They didn't care. And they privately even mentioned that. Um, they, publicly, they won't say that, but privately, they've made it clear they don't, they don't care. And their actions have shown they don't care. So um, it wouldn't really matter what they say. Um, the actions speak louder than words. But so what they decided they would do is they spent uh, $98,000 plus dollars uh, on a uh, impact study from a company out of Salt Lake called Cicero Group. And that was supposed to basically look at uh, all of Utah, northern and southern, and uh, the whole United States, and come back with a report as to how Dixie would impact the school. And so it was, when you read the report, you start to see a lot of problems with it. You know, it's first of all, it's extremely biased. So the questions, the, the way they were written, the very leading, to say the least. In fact, 
when you look at the survey by from their own study, and they can't deny this because it's right on their own study, it shows that people were more uh, biased towards the word Dixie after they took the survey than before by quite a bit. So how would that happen? You know, it's because of the phrasing of the questions. Um, so they were trying to create a narrative, uh, their narrative. They wanted something to support what they were saying because the school has never suffered. I mean, it, it's grown over 40% in the last five years. It's at record high enrollment right now. And it's done all of that and grown without them being there. It's still continued to grow. You know, it's not, it's not like they're doing anything that others haven't done that are so great. You know, the school has continually grown and um, it's the seventh uh, largest or best or highest rated school, I should say, in the Western United States, public school in the Western United States. So it's doing great. And um, so they, they needed something to, if they're gonna circumvent the community, then they gotta come up with some something to show legislators and others as to why it needs to be done. So they, they made this uh, biased uh, study and, um, one of the things that, that they did, which was extremely uh, um, devious, is they asked a question, and this is the, they asked it everywhere, but this is this is in Southern Utah, the one I'm speaking of here. So they asked the question of what does Dixie mean to you geographically, and the number one answer to that for people in Southern Utah was it meant Utah's Dixie to them. Uh, the number two answer, uh, anything after that wasn't significant um, in percentage points, but that the next one was South. And we don't know if they're referring to Southern states or if they're just reserving, you know, uh, talking about the Southern part of the state because it doesn't break that out. Should, doesn't. Then uh, they also said, some people said Confederacy. Now we don't know how many because they won't give us the raw data, which we've been asking and asking and asking for. And quite frankly, if I was them, I wouldn't want to give it up either. Um, but uh, because we know that, that this was used to create a false narrative. And so it could have just been one person for all we know that said Confederate, but we know that in Southern Utah, you're not gonna get a high percentage of people to say Confederacy. So when they did this survey, when they did this summary of the survey of that question, because the school came out with a, an official statement, uh, basically recapping the, the, the summary they got from Cicero. And Cicero report showed that 33% of the people they talked to in Southern Utah equated Dixie with the South slash Confederacy. So they just put anybody who met Southern part of the state, anybody who met Southern, uh, Southern states, like the Old South, or anybody who said Confederacy, put them all into one per one metric so they can create this false narrative that, that it's such a problem. It gets worse though. Actually, after they came out and they made their official statement to the public, the school just said Southern Utah, 33% of all people in Southern Utah equate uh, Dixie to the Confederacy. They just dropped the South altogether when they came out and made their official statement of the summary. So you can see this is there's like lots of examples of this, but that's one of the worst. Yeah, it's uh, oh, it's it, it's quite a stretch. And and anybody who has ever been to this community would understand you. You do not go there because, well, this is where the best racist vibes are to be found. Um, it's an amazing 
uh, community with it with a very uh, with, with a magnificent heritage. And I guess that's really what comes into play here, Brad, is, you know, people may poo poo heritage or, you know, presume that, uh, you know, it's really not worth so much. But uh, I would maintain we are better people when we understand what kind of people it took, you know, to to create the area, you know, that came that were there before us that did the heavy lifting. Um, you can appreciate that heritage a lot more, even if they didn't have the benefit of, you know, perfectly, uh, you know, politically correct vision like we're supposed to have today. But uh, they sure did a lot of good for people. And yet uh, we're not expected to see that. We're expected to try to look for flaws, magnify them. And, and it sounds like in this case, turn them into something that just flat out doesn't exist. Yeah, our ancestors are crying out from their graves, begging us to do this, you know. Uh, it, it's 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 really it defames the whole area of what they're doing. If you say to the world that Utah's Dixie is somehow a negative term, which it most certainly is not, um, you know, even if you change just the fact that the college is even or the university has done this and it's gotten so much uh, press all over uh, has defamed our town. Uh, already, they've caused a lot of damage, and they've even started to indoctrinate the poor students into believing that somehow this is going to be a problem for them. I mean, the, the things they're doing uh, go far beyond just the school. Yeah, let's let's talk how people can can get better involved here. We've got about two minutes left. Um, I want to get people connected with you, particularly we, we have listeners in uh, southern Utah who uh, they may feel strongly about this, but not know where where they can apply their efforts. What, what do you recommend they do? So the best thing you can do is go to dsuhc.org. Uh, even better than that is actually going to just our Facebook page. Uh, just type in DSUHC because then um, you can join the group and have constant updates you know, through posts as to what's going on. You can be involved um, with the community um, uh, on these efforts. The other thing is you can, you know, we'll show you how to write your legislators. That's a big deal. You know, that that's very important that you do that. Uh, just sharing a Facebook post is important if you can, because that helps get the word out organically. Um, you know, donating money if you're in a position to do that, because it's an expensive fight. But uh, and, and we've raised a lot of money, but we need more. Um, and or if you are available to pitch in any labor or even just attend an event, you know, anything you can do helps. So you don't think just because you're old or you're, you know, you're um you're, you're not an activist, you know, that you can't pitch in. Trust me, there's a million things you can do to help us, and anything you do is appreciated, and it does make a difference. And, and Brad, what you're doing, I think, illustrates beautifully. Uh, you know, standing and chanting in unison, it's, that's not enough. I mean, it's good to know that you have like-minded people who are, are willing to, uh, you know, carry the battle forward with you, but... You have to know what you're standing for. And this is where I think you are doing a tremendous service in filling in some of those gaps so people understand what really is at stake here versus, you know, this, you know, well, this is about uh, purging the South, you know, from from our, our memories. I think you're doing great work and, and I, I applaud you for doing so. What's uh, what's the Facebook page once again? It's DSUHC. Okay. Just type that in Facebook. You'll find it. There's that. We have two pages, but the, either one is works. I just joined both. Okay. And your website? Uh, DSUHC.org. Okay. We have about you know over 7,000 members now in less than a year. That's how important it is to people. Very nice. Brad, I appreciate your time. Keep up the good work. Yeah. Thank you for having us on. Appreciate it. 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm, I'm really enjoying that conversation I had with Brad Bennett. And, you know, again, you don't have to live in southern Utah to recognize there is a real problem. And it's, it's the problem of busybodies that are a solution looking for a problem so they can go and impose their, their you know, preferred solution. And they don't care who they run roughshod over in the process, who they, who they tar and feather. You know, I, I saw this uh, post earlier on Facebook. I took a chance and read the article, Moralism and Busybodies, From Community to Police State. And, and what drew me to this, I'm going to put out a shameless plug for, uh, for James R. Harrigan and Anthony Davies, not only the, the hosts of the Words and, and Numbers uh, podcast, but also the authors of Cooperation and Coercion, How Busybodies Became Busy Bullies and What That Means for Economics and Politics. We've had them on the show before. I really need I need to have uh, James and maybe have them both on again. Uh, these guys have a lot of uh, serious food for thought to offer, and they're fun. They they make it fun to to understand these things, and uh, they they don't fall guilty to taking themselves too seriously. Um, I really enjoy getting their insights, and they're and they're dead on. Most everything I've read from them has just been right on the money. So this is. Uh, this is actually an article from Andrew Jason Cohen, and it's published on RadicalClassicalLiberals.com. Now, if, if the word liberal triggered you, I'm going to ask you, hold on there, partner. Um, classical liberals, that's a good thing. That's what, that's what each of us really should aspire is a sense of classical liberalism in terms of having a, a well-rounded worldview that's based in truth, that's based in principle, and, uh, you know, it's it's not uh, it's not the knee jerk left wing liberalism that, that we hear about today. <clears throat> Andrew Jason Cohen says in previous posts, I've discussed what seems to me an extremely worrisome form of legal moralism, wherein people essentially invoke community as a moral good in order to in instant. I'm sorry, instantiate instantiate what they want regardless of what others in their supposed communities prefer. I mean, this is getting right to the busybody part, right? I know what's best for you, so the community has decided this is what we're going to do. Put differently, he says they think interference with your activities is warranted simply to maintain or promote the existence of a community they value, whether or not you or anyone else values the sort of community they do. They may want a neighborhood community where all the houses are painted the same color, they have the same flowers in front, for example. Uh, should you want a different color paint or maybe a different type of flower? Too bad for you. These are examples you might hear of in a homeowner's or a condo association and are fairly insignificant. In fact, he says, indeed, in an HOA or COA where the rules are in the legal documents, I suggest there is no problem at all because living in an HOA or COA entails voluntary agreement to the terms of those documents. These sorts of rules, though, might exist in neighborhoods lacking such agreement. Sometimes neighbors simply pressure each other not to use some paint colors, for example, in order to prevent reductions in property values. And while annoying, even these aren't the sorts of problems I really worry about, perhaps because the claims involved aren't and aren't meant to be moral claims. Now, when the same dynamics involve moral claims, the intensity of demands and thus disagreements are often worse. 
And here he writes, the general problem is what we euphemistically call busybodies. These are people who think they should not only pay attention to your life, but also think they should tell you what to do. And often such people mean well. They're simply trying to help. Some busybodies cross a line, however, by not merely offering advice, by de- but by demanding your compliance. I think we've seen a few examples of this over the last year, though. I can't think of any uh, particular issue over which this may have arisen. All right, sarcasm off. They might demand you not paint your house a certain way, for example, explaining that it will hurt property values and then adding that if you did it anyway, it would be you would be failing in your obligations to your neighbors. And he asks in what such obligations are grounded, though, they don't really say. This is still a minor issue, though. It's just painting your house. But busybodies might also come and tell you how to discipline your child. And again, while this can be done in a friendly, here's some advice, take it or leave it way, it can also be done as a demand based in some unstated moral view. They might insist, for example, that your child not be allowed to play in the woods, be left alone, climb a wall, or ride a specific type of bike. They might say, if you allow those things, you are a bad parent. Good parents don't behave that way. Now, of course, about some things, they may well be right. But make no mistake. He says, some people have no problem interfering with the lives of others. Yeah, some people are naturally interventionist. They think you know how other they think they know how other people should live. They think they know how you and I should live. And very importantly, they believe the government should make us do what they think we should do and disallow us doing what they think we should not. So here's where we get the biggest problems. Problems that arise from further steps along a path to authoritarianism. From encouraging people to maintain their homes for simple practical reasons or offering even undesired parenting advice to claiming we have duties to follow such advice to seeking governmental power to force compliance. We have a spectrum of activities that are worrisome. To make the point clear, consider that some people believe smoking tobacco cigarettes, perhaps especially menthol flavored, is not only bad for you, but also for perhaps perhaps that reason, immoral. And that some people, President Biden, are perfectly happy to use government power to enforce your compliance, all for your own good. The U.S. FDA's stance on this is clear, quote, Banning menthol, the last allowable flavor in cigarettes, and banning all flavors in cigars will help save lives. With these actions, the FDA will help address health disparities experienced by communities of color, low-income populations, and LGBTQ plus individuals, all of whom are far more likely to use these tobacco products. <clears throat> that was from acting FDA Commissioner Jay Woodcock. Now, the article goes on to say, should any of us, including people in communities of color, low-income populations, or amongst LGBTQ plus individuals, think the benefits of smoking outweigh the costs for us, it's too bad for us. The busybodies are perfectly willing to use their power to bully the rest of us. Such people do not mind sending police to arrest you, should you try to sell single cigarettes, sell any without a license you paid for them. You paid them for, rather, or even smoking one in your own home. And they will not mind putting you in prison for failing to comply or killing you on a street corner. Sounds familiar, right? We should not think, though, that this is just about government. He says, busybodies are often willing to use any sort of organization to make others comply with their desires. They're more than willing to vote to limit your ability to do what you want, of course. 
but they're also quite willing to work to impose such restrictions in the workplace or neighborhood. They have no compunction against encouraging the boss to set policies that limit your ability to do what you want. They don't mind petitioning a business to stop performing a service you enjoy or stop selling a product you like. They certainly don't mind having the government make activities you enjoy illegal or limited. What they seek is a society they like, regardless of what you or anyone else likes. And if some people must be imprisoned or killed for the cause, they seem to think that that's simply a cost of attaining a good community or society. I mean, that's that's harsh, but I think it's also fair. Because at the end of every busybody's desire, if only there was a law, you know, that we could address this issue or that issue. There's a penalty attached to every law. And it means somebody is going to enforce it. Notice what word is part of enforce. They will bring force to bear to make people submit, to make people do whatever they're told to do. I like how a friend of mine put it once. He says, you know, it's a good idea if you're going to propose a law to ask yourself first, would I be willing to kill another person to prevent them from breaking this law? And if the answer is no, I mean, that doesn't mean that there are certain things. Well, it's wrong, but I guess I really can't kill him for not picking up his socks or whatever. No, um, it's it's more a matter of save the force of the state for very serious matters where there's a clear victim. Where you can point to an actual crime that took place. Busybodies don't want that. They want to invent crimes. They want to invent reasons to get in your business and force you to do something. I'll have a link in the show notes to this article by Jason. I'm sorry, Andrew Jason Cohen. It's from the RadicalClassicalLiberals.com website. And yes, it has a very nice plug here at the end for uh, Anthony Davies and James Harrigan's cooperation, cooperation and Coercion, How Busybodies Became Busy Bullies and What That Means for Economics and Politics. These guys are phenomenal authors and writers and commentators. I think you'd really enjoy their book. That's going to wrap it up for today. A quick shout out to our sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org, HSLAmmo.com, and Pure-Light.com. You'll find links in the show notes at TheBrianHeidShow.com. Thanks again for being part of our audience. This is The Brian Hyde Show.